A new year brings a new beginning. And why not start your new year in business right with FedEx Office? If you are just starting or have been running your company for generations, FedEx Office gives you the best way to print marketing materials, posters, signage, graphics, and so much more. With FedEx, every step from creating to ordering is fast and easy. Just as simple as realizing the FedEx logo forms an arrow between its last two letters. While we leave you to re-examine your entire life based on that small realization, we'll be teaming up with FedEx to bring our listeners 30% off your next order of $100 or more at podgo.co slash FedEx. That's podgo.co slash FedEx for 30% off your next order. Welcome back to All Alone with Something to Say. This is your host, Emma Newberry, and I'm joined today by guest Hannah Altman to discuss Judaism what it means to be a Jewish woman, her expression of Judaism in her art, in photography, and much more. So please enjoy the show. I am Hannah Altman. Uh, I am a photographer, an artist, and educator, newly based in Providence, Rhode Island, but from New Jersey. Welcome. I first became familiar with your work through your book, Kavanaugh, and I was just like completely, quietly stunned by it. I don't really know how to describe it. Nostalgic and also timeless. And I know in your artist statement, you wrote a lot about time and like the importance of ritual and performance. And I think especially during this time when we're all sort of isolated, the memory of normal actions or things that, you know, used to be normal is even more important. Um, so I just want to start off by asking how you, how you're doing right now. Cause it's a weird time for everybody. So it's interesting that so much of this work is about community and about participating with others and, and, there are a few self-portraits in it and a few portraits of my mom and of other family members I've gotten to see. Um, but so much of the work would be photographing friends and photographing um, people that I'm meeting for the first time in the Jewish community. And there was a lot of travel involved in that and a lot of hanging in close spaces with strangers. Um, so the sudden stop of that has been has been kind of interesting um, and has mm. led my work in some awkward and interesting direction. So we'll see how that uh, <laughs> works out. But I, within COVID, I finished my master's at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. And I like defended my thesis in my PJs in my childhood bedroom. It was kind nice. of, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then in that time frame, someone that I went to grad school with, um, happened to mention that they have a family home in outside, right outside of Providence on a beach in Providence. And it's a very manual house. Like it has manual heat. You have to like dump out the heat hmm. once a week and water the plants and such. And they were looking for, um, like a tenant slash house sitting situation, someone to come live in it. And I was so bored at my parents' house during COVID <laughs> that I was like, I'll do it. So I've just impulsively <laughs> ended up in Providence. <laughs> But so far, so good, I guess. I've been here a couple months, and it's it's been like the perfect post-grad school move. Just, I mean, grad school is so stressful. Then I moved to the beach where everything's super slow. So it's been a really good change of pace. Also, I feel like even though your life, your personal life may have slowed down, I checked today and was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm interviewing this person today. But 
because I know the silver list just came out and you were listed on that and in Vanity Fair. So that's super, it seems like career wise, things are still moving in really exciting directions. Yeah, it's nice that it that there is that sort of stuff happening while I'm working on mm. new stuff because that almost, you know, Kavana, while it met a weird abrupt end because of COVID, it it fortunately, you know, it had the opportunity to be, to be published as a book by Chris Graves Projects, which is such a great experience. Um and still is. He, he really looks out for the artists he published. Um, but it it feels nice that there was a, a period where I was intensely making work. And now that's kind of the work that's being, um, you know, put out in the public sphere while I'm like, mm-hmm. hold away at the beach making different work. So it, it it's nice that it that it kind of ended up working out that way for now. Mm-hmm. The book is really beautifully done. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your experience with Judaism growing up and how that sort of came into your work. Yeah. And it's so funny that I denied a phone call from my mom in the beginning of this conversation. I talked <laughs> the about the most Jewish thing you could do. <laughs> a lot of work that ended up being in Kavana, while it feels like a separate project, a lot of these ideas have been explored for many years. I grew mm. up Jewish, but in a very assimilated family. You know, both my parents are Jewish. I was raised Jewish. I had a bat mitzvah. I did birthright. I kind of went through all of those, you know, more highlighted phases without even really. Um, deeply considering the ways that practicing the spirituality aspect of it can really impact the way that I think, the way that I make work. It was all just very casual. And it almost it was almost easier to be that kind of Jew because I had absolutely no anxiety about being Jewish. I was just like, yeah, yes. whatever, I'm Jewish. And now that I have all of this work about Jewish ideas and I work at a Jewish nonprofit and I feel very invested in a Jewish practice and a Jewish identity, now is the point where I'm like, I'm a bad Jew. I don't know anything. I'm faking it. I'm a poser. Um, <laughs> <laughs> of course, I don't know. That's very, very anxious, I guess. Um, mm. But I think that the that Kavana, as it exists now, started from a bunch of different things kind of colliding at the same time. My mom and I, speaking of, work on a uh, portrait project of photographs of her and I. And we've been working on that for several years. And one of those images was an image in her childhood bedroom while in the other room her mother was dying in hospice care. So, Mm. you know, so it started to become about more than just her and I in in maybe that way. And that was in about 2017. And then I started grad school in 2018, a few months after my grandmother passed. And during that first semester of grad school, when I was still kind of floundering and like figuring out what how I was going to spend my time in those next two years in grad school I was also coming home to New Jersey a lot and you know kind of going through their whole house they're fortunate enough that they have lived in that same house for like 50 years it's very much a time capsule um so my grandmother kept everything and she had a lot of Judaica that when we started to go through I started to feel really drawn towards and so I was making some photographs of it and that felt very, it provided a very good sense of healing. And it, it just, it felt right to be interacting with these objects in this way. And then I started thinking about family and memory and, and heirlooms. And then it started to expand kind of past physical objects and more into um, Jewish ritual and Jewish thought at large. And then it kind of exploded from there. I feel like family is the best place to start, especially with Judaism. I studied religion in school so clearly I'm like not paid any money and like doing all this stuff on the side but um I was really drawn I mean I was raised Jewish as well but 
I also was really drawn to Judaism because it is so centered on the tangible and praxis and not as much, it's not as faith-based, I Mm -hmm. guess. Um, And I think your photographs really evoke that. It just, I don't know, it it felt weirdly familiar. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Do you think that through looking at it through an artistic lens, your take on Judaism has shifted definitely and it also is like an excuse to kind of tap in in a very different way in that i mean it sort of bleeds over into my non-artistic life as well but there you know like there would be periods of very intense research time where i was like researching something very specific um like there's an image in there that is me like spitting on a bug um (laughs) yeah um it's called washing the dead funeral for a beetle because i was really entrenched in um reading about teharaz the the burial process for a recently deceased uh where one of the last actions you can perform for a jewish person the last mitzvah you can perform for someone else is helping wash off their body and kind of purify um and then dress them for their own funeral and it's a very intimate act and it's almost like an honor to be asked to participate in something like that while that doesn't apply to anything that I might have been going through at that moment, it's it's less about photographing a ritual like as exactly it exists and rather taking those ideas of purity, those ideas of death, those ideas of comforting another person, another living thing, and then translating that into photographic narrative. Mm-hmm. So I mean, Judaism is kind of like an endless well to draw from in that regard, you know? And I, I love what you said about how it's not faith-based. I feel like that's a really important distinction because there's yeah. there are a ton of Jewish artists, but because America is a, a Christ-centric country, the word religion just tends to automatically relate in people's heads to an idea of like some unyielding faith. Like if something's right. not working out, just like pray to God about it and some, you know, male thing in the sky is going to hear that. Right. And that's just like not how Judaism functions at all. And I think allowing myself to completely it almost is it's the opposite of assimilating you know it's it's decimulating it's like creating a specifically jewish way of thinking that is is separate from what christian america is thinking about religion and thinking about relationships with a unifying force when making work and then presenting it in america there's always kind of a christianization of it do you feel like people understand the distinction you're trying to make when you are talking about your work. Going to grad school in the South was really interesting in yeah, this regard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it really, I mean, it's so funny because like I said, I grew up in New Jersey um, and I also lived in Pittsburgh for a long time, which both have very significant Jewish populations. And of course, you know, you know about the Bible Belt, you think about how America is a very, you know, Christ-centric country. Um, but then you move to the South and 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 I should make a list of like crazy things that people say to me in complete like earnest gestures of like, I am trying to talk to you about Jewishness. There would be people who went to a very small school in the deep South and they were just taught that uh, the only difference is that Judaism doesn't have a Jesus and they just haven't found him yet. You know what I mean? So they're and, yeah. and like, that goes so deep. Like there are so many microaggressions that come with that, that it does, it kind of drives me to make work that is making more of that distinction between Christian thought and and Jewish thought. To, to lump the two together to try to make religion a simple concept, the term Judeo-Christian is ridiculous to me. Do you think there's something about Judaism that lends itself to artistic expression? There, oh my god, I think of the name of this 
this book that you would really like. Oh, it's called After Ouija, but I can't remember the name of the author. Um, but it is a book specifically about Jewish American photographers, um, and, and not photographers that are making explicitly Jewish work, but Jewish photographers in America um, that are, you know, at, you know, post fifties. Um, and it is a really interesting book because it talks about this in the sense that um, Jews are always on the on the edge of some sort of mainstream, especially in like post-World War II America. Like there yeah. is enough white privilege that there is the ability to have like what I, what I guess I would call like passing on the street type privilege for at least some Ashkenazic Jews. Mm-hmm. But there, it's always a, you're not white according to white supremacists. And it doesn't matter if you're lighting Shabbat candles on a Friday night or if you're totally assimilated, a Jew is a Jew. Right. So there's always this sort of like sense of of removal or this sense of not being truly American. And he talks about that a lot in the book too. And I I think it's really fascinating because it gives you this ability to sort of photograph from the outside, but get access from the inside. And it's it's really interesting in terms of power dynamics because, you know, photography, um, there there are so many interesting power dynamics in race, in in subject versus um, photographer dynamics. And so being, I think, Jewishness in relation to all of that is super messy. Hmm. I was going to ask what you're, especially with something that feels as embodied and like centered in connection as Kavana, like what was your process like? Making the work felt stressful because it was a lot of work in a short amount of time, which is the epitome of an MFA program um, for better or worse. <laughs> but the actual photographing itself was really calm. Like I, I, and I most I mostly photograph that way. Um, I'm a little more hard on myself when I'm making self portraits. But when I go and photograph someone, um, if even if it's a family member, even if it's a stranger, it's never like I get there and and pull the camera out and there's I'm just immediately directing. I'm I feel like I yeah. find myself just like chatting for a couple of hours before the camera even comes out, or maybe we'll meet up multiple times. Especially because there are so many different forms of Jewishness in this project, you know, like there's Hasidic Jews yeah. here, there's atheist Jews in here, Jews that that really wouldn't get along if I put them all in a room together. I'd be really curious what happens. Um, but I, I think I'm a bit of a chameleon in that way where I can I, I would mm-hmm. much rather um, talk to someone for for a few hours and see where they're coming from and how they relate to what we are thinking about photographing before the camera even comes out. Um, so it's kind of a mm-hmm. slow process. And I think that tends to that kind of nurturing I think is important to the work and I think it's kind of nice that some of it's family some of it's friends and some of it is people I literally met because I put up a flyer at the Y in Richmond (laughs) you know like and I think that that says a lot about collective memory too you know if, if, Mm -hmm. if it's talking about this shared experience through ritual it um is interesting that it's able to be translated through photographs that way that, that a photograph of someone I'm meeting for the first time can read as sort of soft and quiet and kind of established in that in the way of intimacy right. as as photographing my mom or something. When I read the preface, I guess, to the book, mm-hmm. maybe this is just because of the kind of media that I like unconsciously seek out, but this was the first like positive representation of the kind of like collective ache that you talked about of Judaism, because I think especially among assimilated, not like self-hating, but like just, you know, people who aren't 
really affirmatively identifying as much that way. Mm-hmm. It's it's really common, I think, especially in like Jewish humor to just make jokes about epigenetics and like all of the stress that is literally wound through your DNA and all the suffering that has happened and how it extends so far beyond you that at least when I was younger, I used to feel that as like such a weight. Mm. And I didn't really conceive of it as a connectivity. It was more just like pressure. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have ever felt anything like that. I was very um, surprised. I wasn't expecting to have that kind of reaction to it. Yeah. No, I think that's so real. Like there, there's definitely this, there's a shared weight of, of you know, inherited trauma. And I think that there is so much work about that. Yeah. There was a lot of digging past research specifically I mean like in terms of photography there's a lot of discourse about this right now just about you know self-representation and inherited trauma Um, but in terms of specifically Jewish research there's so much written about the holocaust there's so much written about pre-holocaust trauma there's so much written about every you know 109 exiles like that that takes a toll on a population but you know weirdly enough that is a lot of secular writers a lot of secular Jewish writers approach Jewishness from this very historical angle. And while, yeah. of course, there is the the emotional of, you know, the weight of trauma, the other side of this research that I was finding a lot that I identified so much more with was the spiritual side. And I don't particularly um, adhere to, like, one specific denomination. Like, I keep Shabbat, but I don't keep kosher. You know, I'm kind of, I'm mm-hmm. kind of up in the air. But I, I found myself reading a lot of Hasidic thought because it's incredibly celebratory. It, it acknowledges trauma and it acknowledges the, the con- kind of constant strife of having a Jewish body. But it acknowledges that and then kind of moves on by saying like, but look at all this stuff that is going on within a Jewish world. You can spend your entire life as a rabbinical student studying one page of some commentary of some text of some text of somebody else's text and that's your whole like obsession like I mean it's 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 really splitting hairs in like the most interesting way because you're bound to find some sort of some vein of research that you are super excited about because there are people who Mm -hmm. instead of um approaching things from a more historical document type of way approach it from a more like ritualistic type of way and I'm way more drawn to that I think and I think yeah. in, in terms of relating that to photography, there's a lot of photography that is photographs of a certain community made by someone in the community. And the intention is to photograph and share the community. And that works really great. And I think that there's a very necessary place for that kind of work in photographic discourse. But I do think that I think Kavana is doing something different in that it's not like questioning the Jewishness of subjects. It's not questioning their representation physically. It's more so just talking about Jewish action and connecting it to the body regardless of the body. Yeah, there's a lot more mysticism and like uh, flexibility in, I guess, what you could call orthodoxy than people think, at least than than I thought. Um, Yeah, I was wondering if there were any aspects of Jewish mysticism that you also were exploring in as part of that well it's so funny because yes I love that shit and it's funny that (laughs) me too it's so good that's like that I would so much rather um I think it's also a very American thing to like a lot of non-Jews if I'm talking to them about the work it immediately goes to some sort of like oh you are from a marginalized people let's I have nothing else to talk to you about 
except for mm-hmm. that and maybe how you have things in common with Christianity I don't know you know <laughs> but but the the actual you know the mysticism the the Kabbalah the um interpretations of Zohar is so much more fascinating to me um and yeah. I get so much more inspiration out of those ideas and especially how they can relate to a photographic image I just read a commentary on how the Zohar presents narrative devices and I think Mm -hmm. it's and essentially it talks about how the Zohar being a commentary on the Bible doesn't always within its folkloric stories doesn't always directly reference a story but you're just supposed to know through these like intercontextual details and I think that's really fascinating Mm -hmm. essentially that you should know if you are if you are a, a studious Jewish person reading the Zohar and you and you read a story about um, somebody giving water in, and it's really hot outside, your brain should be able to immediately go to Miriam in the desert giving water. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? But and, and does it matter if your brain automatically goes there? No, because it is still a story about somebody giving water mm. in some sort of hot climate. And I think that photographically translated is so interesting. I think photography is closer to literature than it is any other artistic medium just because we read it really quickly our exposure to images makes us as literate visually as we are in written word so right. i think approaching images in the same way that the zohar approaches stories using you know familiar imagery using references to other stories using references to rituals is is really the way that i've been approaching making photographs especially in the last year or so it's not as much about the ritual as it is about the way that the ritual interacts with environment, body, and previous actions. So, like there in Kavana, there is someone immersing in a mikvah. Mm-hmm. I mean, which is scandalous to start. The, like it. I mean, they're really. I've seen maybe one or two other photo projects in a mikvah space, just because the ritual itself is so intensely private. You know, women only go after right. nightfall, etc. We found there's a mikvah space in. Are you? You're in Massachusetts, right? Yeah. There's a mikveh in um, outside of Boston called Mayim Haim, and they're so amazing. They hmm. uh, run a very progressive mikveh space where anyone can immerse uh, for any reason that they see fit, any non-male identifying person. Um, mm-hmm. Though I actually, I, I'm not entirely sure about. Like I know, I know they're very trans and non-binary inclusive, but I don't know if men can. Not sure, but mm-hmm. regardless, you can immerse for a birthday. You can immerse to mourn a death, and in this way, you know it expands way beyond the sort of like biological use of a mikvah to purify after you get your period, and it, it makes it very applicable for Jews to immerse for any reason that they see fit and want to connect to their Jewishness. So I have that photo of the mikvah immersion is my cousin immersing on her thirtieth birthday, and so we went to Mayim Haim because they let me photograph that sort of expansion of ritualistic practice is like very necessary. As a Jewish woman, I have often felt alienated by a lot of the purification elements of Jewish literature, just like as they relate to menstruation and stuff. But Mm -hmm. I think water is such a perfect conduit for a lot of what we're talking about. Like there is this idea of immersion into this familiarity, like this ocean of all the people who have been there before you and all the people who will come after you and that's really powerful and I and I think like and don't get me wrong I'm not suggesting that there isn't negative connotations 
Yeah. You know, like, I, and I, but I think it's more about the necessary expansion doesn't necessarily mean the erasure of of our more traditional usage. Because even doing like very extensive mikvah research, I was talking to a Hasidic woman who was like, this is the center of my Jewish practice. She's like, I know that it seems archaic. I know it seems like my body is unclean, but the ability to withdraw from my husband for a period of time, have my body be to myself and then to immerse and and be able to be entirely within myself for a set period of time every month literally makes my world go round. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, like I have absolutely no place to be able to be like, that's not feminist enough for me. Right. You know? Right. Because I think that that if we're going to be actually intersectional, we can't, you know, ignore the practices of Hasidic and Orthodox Jewish women. And that's, I mean, at least in my understanding, that's sort of what Kavana means. Like just, it's the intention with which you approach whatever it is you're doing. Right. So if, you know, like, for example, like you said, with the mikvah, if she has this specific connection to it, that to her is not alienating but actually a way to connect back to herself then yeah you can't just observe it from the outside and implicitly from above and like judge that kind of thing right and that, i mean that's and that's very important to me to include all of those different kinds of voices within the same project like i mean it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit um contradictory on purpose you know to to kind of acknowledge that idea like i'm not at all presenting any sort of answers but i'm very interested in exploring the different different levels of how it can be approached which is also super jewish yeah asking more (laughs) questions and not answering any of them and then writing more about why people ask those questions yeah well also that it goes back to this idea of living in a a christian-centric country where there's there's this craving to have this very concrete singular answer and that's just not how jewish thought functions i would be a lot less interested in it if i had some um you know sort of query and and there was an answer for me provided I would I would not be as entertained I guess and I think there's lots of proposed (laughs) answers and lots of proposed commentary that makes very valid points but I appreciate that there can always be more commentary built off of it and it's a very alive type of text this is not to disparage Christianity at all but I think that the thing that comes to mind in contrast to maybe the way that Judaism might approach something like this is the explanation of the Holy Trinity. There's a lot of anxiety around like making sure that everybody understands exactly how Christ and God and the Holy Ghost are related. Like we need to get everybody on the same page about this, at least I think in more religious literature. Mm-hmm. And I think I can just picture rabbis being like, why was he even here anyway? And like, <laughs> No, that's so, that's so real. And I think another, another difference too, is that while Judaism has specific denominations it's all under the same umbrella and it's kind mm-hmm. of and but I you know if Christians disagree on small things like eating the wafer it's a whole new sect that does right. not interact with the other sect but I also part of me thinks that Jews can't literally could not afford that type of division you know like I think there is quite a large split between some very observant Jews and some very secular Jews and some very Zionist Jews versus some very non-Zionist Jews I think there are some pretty pretty big divisions and I don't think Judaism could survive a lot of divisions so much in the way that we're always like Mm -hmm. why don't these people understand me I think we also have to be like why don't I understand these people like why can't you know I mean It it has to go both ways I know you have a portrait of Sandra Lawson in the book too. Mm. And I agree that 
conceptually, Judaism maybe is not built to like withstand those kinds of divisions. There is definitely this idea of like, this is what a Jewish person looks like. And even just like generally how somebody comes to Judaism, like I think the conversion process, which I honestly don't know very much about, mm-hmm. but I read her piece about, I guess it was in the the foreword. Oh, yeah. Yeah. About black and Jewish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and just this idea that people were like, what? No, <laughs> no. That feels so antithetical to the idea of this openness and like asking questions and allowing everybody to explore. But there definitely is, as you said earlier, a lot of white privilege sort of like embedded in the typical Jewish understanding of like what Judaism is. Right. Um, Yeah. It's also pretty specifically American. Like I think America is something like 75% Ashkenazi Jews. Um, But I think to, to see someone that looks Middle Eastern or black and to say you don't look Jewish as a non-Jewish person in America it just speaks to what you were exposed to in America. And it, it also lets me know that you have yeah. no idea what Israeli Jews are <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. outside of this country. That's really not what Jewry looks like. It, it looks right. like it here, but it's for very specific reasons. It's, it's for very specific politics, you know, post-World War II politics. I agree with you. The, the, you don't look Jewish conversation seems incredibly silly to me, but I mean, she was super nice. She left that role recently and is now the head of, inclusion and diversity for reconstructing reconstructing Judaism um, mm. like as a branch so it's a pretty it's a pretty big deal and I, I'm, I'm trying to think of where they're located I think Philly so she might be relocating so she'll actually be closer to me now but um yeah I, I mean I, I love a cold email love a DM <laughs> Good. <laughs> <Never goes> well. <laughs> the worst that can happen photographers are kind of weird because they're very I, I don't know if I would consider myself an extrovert per se, but I it's almost like a switch I can just flip on if I'm like, I know this will be a cool photograph if I just reach out to this person. I have no shyness at all when it when there's the excuse of the camera as part of the conversation, you know? But in, in like outside of that, I would consider myself a very pretty soft spoken person, which I think lends to the way that the work ends up turning out. So it's like this weird mix of both. I was going to ask, I know you mentioned sort of at the beginning that you're more critical with your self-portraiture work. Mm. And I mean, that makes sense why that would be. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what your process is like with that. Mm-hmm. It's so tough. I mean, it it's hard to, because I don't use any sort of remote. I mean, if I was smart, I would get one and set it up because then I didn't <laughs> take a million photos. But I, I actually, there's something um, very masochistic <laughs> to, to be enjoyed about having to have it, I set it on timer, get into some sort of positioning, get up and check it. And then it's, it's a very like physical process to try to, you know, move your neck ever so slightly to try to like relax a look in your eyes or something. It takes so much that a lot of the time I photograph a lot when I'm with someone else, like I'll take like 200 frames because it's digital, who cares, you know, I snap them off. But when making self portraits, I really, I'll sometimes I'll do like a dozen and there's a lot of time in between Mm -hmm. the images because I have to look at it and be like, okay, is this in focus? What is what I want to be in focus in focus? What's the framing doing? What's my face doing? What's the positioning doing? What, what's whatever prop doing? And all, uh, you know, about 20 things have to come together. Hmm. And I think when, when photographing others, I'll, I'll edit like 
five, six images before I really come down to like the one or two that are my favorite. Um, and maybe the one I end up publishing and showing, but then with self-portraits, it's usually like one or two in general that are even workable just because Mm. it's a different dynamic. The criticism that you're describing is more compositional and like technical as opposed to like when I, if I take a picture of myself, I'm like, I look dumb. Like, you know, it's, (laughs) is there, what's your relationship with your body like in those moments? When I was younger, I think as much as, you know, we can, we can call ourselves feminists and dissect cultural norms, you're still very invested in it, especially if you're an image maker. Yeah. So of course, your first instinct in an image is, do I look skinny enough in this? Is my face flattering in this? And I think the ability to completely detach from that is super necessary for self-portraiture. I FaceTimed a curator for the first time, like a couple of months ago. And she said, oh, I had no idea what you looked like. Because I just, I've seen your self-portraits and I just, I feel like you look different in every single picture. I had no, I, I had mm. no like idea of what you just looked like on the phone. And I'm, and that kind of freaked me out, but it also kind of comforted <laughs> me because I, I think making self-portraits and completely disengaging from the fact that you have to look a certain way um, at any point really just allows you to just turn into anything. Everything is performative to me. I, I really like I think if if you're under the impression that photographs are telling you some sort of unstaged truth, you gotta it's just you gotta break it. It's a bad habit. You gotta <laughs> it's just not true. And so I do delve into performance work at times because I, I think some things work better in a in a physical space to be experienced by others, um, especially if they're using very intricate type props like a lot of the there was two performances that used a lot of thread and needles and I feel like that is a more environmental um, very tactile type performance and while it would it would look interesting as a photograph it is interesting to see how other things translate through other mediums but I think everything I do is super it always has an aspect of performance have you read the sabbath by heschel Mm-mm. Oh my god, it's a life it's a life changer. It uh, <laughs> is this guy who he was a rabbi in the sixties. He like marched with Lu- Martin Luther King. He, you know, super leftist dude, and he wrote this book called The Sabbath, um, about how time is sacred and that Judaism is not a religion of place, but it's a religion of time. And that Shabbat specifically is a palace in time that kind of remains untouched mm. by everything else. And I've just been really loving that idea and making a lot of work about that. Yeah, the idea of a palace in time is really beautiful. Yeah. In the way that Kavana takes a lot of different ideas and kind of houses them under one roof, I think the work that I've been making in the last year is is kind of doing the opposite, where it's taking one fairly specific idea and expanding it outwards and seeing what kind of uh, photographic imagery can come from that. And specifically, I'm thinking about Jewish portrayals of time and how that can relate to photography, how twilight in Judaism doesn't really, it's not day and it's not night, but it has attributes of both. So it kind of balances in this liminal space. Mm. Um, And I also think that has a lot to do with Jewish storytelling and the the sort of Zoharic approach to narrative, like I was talking about earlier, like it, it it's yeah. all this, it's one thing, but it's talking about this other thing and it's relying on this other thing to make everything work. And I think that's like a really interesting way of approaching images and making images. So a lot of them have been thinking about time in that way. 
We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of All Alone with Something to Say. If you would like to purchase Hannah's monograph, Kavana, you can do so through chrisgravesprojects.com and you can also find her at hannahaltmanphoto.com for more information about her work. Special thanks to Kenny Noel for music and to Dan Valu for the lovely ads. Have you got something to say? If you do, you can find us on Instagram or Twitter at the All Alone Pod, or you can email us at the All Alone Pod at gmail.com. <laughs>